We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us for another installment of the program. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter at Dan Proft, at Dan Proft Show. Same thing at Dan Prop Show on Facebook. So uh, last night's debate in Las Vegas was uh, a big win for Michael Bloomberg's consultants, no question, because uh, he's probably going to have to pour in another half to full billion dollars of television ads to recover from that shelling he took largely at his own hands, but certainly with the assistance of those combatants on stage. Elizabeth Warren the first to welcome him to the debate stage, welcome him to full participation in the presidential sweepstakes, you know, less than uh, two minutes in. So I I like to talk about who we're running against, a billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. (laughs) Democrats are not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women, and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Look, I'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is, but understand this. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. Bernie Sanders, later on in the debate, uh, argued that uh, Mike Bloomberg shouldn't even exist in this country. Senator Sanders, what did you mean that you don't think they should exist? what What did that mean? We have a grotesque and immoral distribution of wealth and income. Mike Bloomberg owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. That's wrong. That's immoral. That should not be the case when we got a half a million people sleeping out on the street. And so the question is, um, could it be for uh, Bernie in particular, since he's the front runner, that uh, Bloomberg is the best thing to happen to him in this campaign? To help us answer that question, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Victor Jakes. He's a columnist for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Victor, thanks for joining us at the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, You picked up on the same thing I picked up on from the debate yesterday from uh, this piece that you wrote for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, that uh, a lot of firepower was aimed in the direction of Bloomberg. Bloomberg spent a lot of time inartfully defending himself or trying to ignore some of the incoming fire he was taking. It seemed to me, to analogize to 2016, everybody on that stage other than Sanders was jockeying for second position. And as happened with Trump, by the time you get done jockeying for second position, the front runner is already lapped the field. And that may be the same thing that happens for Bernie because of Bloomberg's presence. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, and actually, Mayor Pete did kind of 
try and get some shots in there at Bernie. You know, he talks about he doesn't know how he's going to pay for his plans. He talked about his, his health, some of the behavior of his online supporters. But no one's going to remember that no. because Mike Bloomberg was serving as a human pinata for at least the first hour of the debate. That that's what everyone's going to remember. That's what everyone's going to talk about. Look, if you're the front runner and they aren't talking about you after a debate, that's all you wanted to do at the debate. So I, I agree. I think this was a huge win for Bernie Sanders. He, according to recent polling out uh, your way in Vegas, uh, he has extended his lead going into Saturday's caucus. I, I wonder if that's the feel you get on the ground there, too, that the momentum is really behind Sanders in, in Nevada. Yeah, I do. I think the, the momentum is certainly, is certainly with Sanders here. You know, obviously he had the experience of, of caucusing out here four years ago. He's had a he's had a large team on the ground. I think they've been working hard and, and turning his supporters out. And I think the the thing that people need to remember, you know, it, you know, Elizabeth Warren did land some some really good shots at Mike Bloomberg. Um, you know, there's a chance maybe she she boosts her numbers a little bit, but they, they've already had probably at least half to 60 percent of the people who are going to caucus. They've already caucused because we have this early caucusing thing out here. And so they caucus before the debate. And so, you know, even if someone had a bounce coming out of that debate, the, the bounce is going to be less than it would have because the universe of, of voters is much smaller than, than it would be in, say, Iowa. Oh, that's a key point. Yeah, that's a key point. And, and so uh, going into the debate, I, I mean, it was, again, in terms of Bloomberg providing an unintentional benefit to Bernie. I mean, he's sucking up all the oxygen. It's hard for some of these other candidates to to, to push their way into a second look from the voters in Nevada when Bloomberg is saturating the airwaves and, you know, sort of dominating the conversation as the alternative to Bernie. Well, it is. And it's actually, it's interesting, too, because he's actually not on the ballot here in, in Nevada. And so right, right. he was on the debate stage. People were able to see him for the first time. But you, you actually aren't going to be able to vote for him for another uh, couple of weeks until uh, until Super Tuesday. So um, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, see how voters react, especially in South Carolina. You know, Joe Biden stayed alive basically for the whole debate, which is a pretty good accomplishment for, for him. Uh, so maybe that maybe that gives him a little boost in South Carolina. Has there been any any uh, movement? Uh, I mean, Sanders has seemed to extend his lead, according to some recent polling, as I said, in Vegas. But is there anybody else that's moving at all that could potentially uh, offer a surprisingly close second place or, uh, you know, may get a bounce coming out of Nevada? You know, I think the person who who will surprise folks is Tom Steyer. Um, he actually, you know, he wasn't on the stage last night. Uh, he, but he's, he's invested a lot of money in Nevada. Uh, you know, obviously also a billionaire, not a Mike Bloomberg billionaire, but still a billionaire. He's been spending heavily out here. Uh, he's got a, a big campaign team. He's doing events throughout the state and he's really chipped into, uh, Biden's minority support, not just in South Carolina, but out here, you know, polling kind of shows him in that, that second, third, fourth range. Uh, so there, there's a chance that, that Steyer comes in second here. I, mean, I wouldn't put it as a big chance, but I, I think, you know, if he's, if he's able to secure any delegates and get back on the, the, the debate stage before South Carolina, I think that would be a big win. Uh, but I think Tom Steyer might be the kind of dark horse here. I, I certainly think he's going to finish ahead of Klobuchar and Buttigieg. Hmm, interesting. Uh, it, the, just the administration of the election, since this has become a bit of a thing, especially uh, with the Iowa caucus and Nevada being the, the next caucus up. Um, you wrote about this and suggested that um, there could actually be some real problems there. Uh, Nevada Democrat Party officials have not committed to guaranteeing 
election night results on Saturday. And I wonder what the state of play is there with the election administration by the party in Nevada. Well, let's put it this way. The, the voting's on Saturday, and they held their first training on how they're going to calculate the caucus votes on Tuesday. So That's they are uh, just in time delivery. Yeah. I think actually lowering expectations is smart. I, I think you know, right after Iowa, I said, look, they should just say we'll have results Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific. Um, because it's look, it's complicated. They scrapped their their two apps that they're going to use, and now they're using a third app that, that you know obviously they've just started training people on. Um, you know, because yeah, because one of the the, run, the one of the apps they were going to use was the same app that was used in Iowa. That's why they scrapped it, correct? Yeah, the, the developer was the same developer as, as the, the you know the developer who botched uh, what happened in Iowa, and so they you know they felt like they had to scrap it. And but you know they they've got these iPads that they're giving out, so they're doing something better than Iowa. They're giving the precinct captains iPads so that people aren't using their own phones, they're not having to download something. But the trainings, you know, people are coming out of these trainings and saying, you know, look, there's there's seven year old grandmas and and they're kind of like squinting at the iPad and like oh boy. you know trying to figure out how to work it. Um, so th- there's downsides with that too. And I, I I just I wouldn't expect at least a lot of results on Saturday. Uh, and, you know, just to make sure that you get it right. If I was them, I would, you know, I would just be upfront about a delay. And then if you can produce results sooner, great. But, um, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces with a lot of volunteers who are making thousands of math calculations, <laughs> which and, is just a recipe for, for problems. And, and so, so even though, as you were saying, uh, as many as half the caucus voters have already voted because you have this early voting uh, uh, feature, uh, th- those results will be held back until they get the actual precinct results from those who show up on election day. Is that is that how it will work? Yeah, yeah. Because what happens with those early results is they have to get sent to that voter specific precinct. Right. So it's not that it's not like they just know half the results. They have to they have to take you know if, if John Smith goes and votes, they have to match his ballot and send it to his precinct. So when you know fifty of his neighbors show up, there's there's going to be another fifty uh, early voting ballots that are ranked, you know, so if, um, you know, say uh, Elizabeth Warren doesn't achieve viability, well, then instead of just everyone in the room rearranging, they have to rearrange the, the ballots of people who voted early. Uh, and so it's going to be it's going to add some complexity. It's not just, you know, go stand, go stand in this corner of the room. It's go stand in this corner of the room. And, and then let's let's see how people who voted early who aren't here, uh, who their second choice uh, finisher was. Well, we appreciate you adjusting our expectations accordingly. That uh, that makes a lot of sense. It seems judicious, given what you've described. He is Victor Jakes. He's a columnist for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Victor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I came to get down. I came to get down. So get out your seat and jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just to uh, continue our conversation about Wednesday night's debate and what that portends, not just for the Nevada caucus, but for the campaign more generally, as I, Bloomberg just absolutely bombed. He came across as the fastidious, petty, 
to borrow from that Hitchens piece we talked about uh, yesterday. Sort of dispassionate, disengaged, effete. How many more negative adjectives can I come up with? Out-of-touch individual that uh, he was advertised to be. Colorless, charismaless. Now, on that stage, to say colorless, that's really something. That is such a bland field of individuals on that debate stage that Amy Klobuchar is sort of the zany cut-up. That's how bad it is. There's something about Bernie. It's not just Bloomberg running interference for him by sucking up all the oxygen and and, uh, essentially uh, holding the rest of the field in place in most places. It's also this problem that the elites have as much as they as much as the Bloombergs of the world and Obama land and Clinton world, as much as they want to stop Bernie Sanders. They have a problem. And the problem is it's only them who want to stop Bernie Sanders. So this uh, uh, Nate Silver had a piece on it earlier in the week at 538 blog. This idea that Sanders has a uh, high floor and a low ceiling. That's a real thing. But it doesn't mean he has no upside. And uh, this survey from Monmouth University is quite interesting. And uh, Peter Beinart writes about it in The Atlantic. Monmouth University survey found not only that Bernie Sanders' favorability rating among Democrats nationally was higher than his top five rivals, but also that his unfavorability rating was lower, tied for second lowest. Sanders' favorability rating among Democrats nationally, 71%. His unfavorability, 19%. I'll tell you what, for a guy who's been around as long as he has and took on Clinton four years ago and has as many candidates that he's running against as he does at present, as much flack as he's taking from the Obama world, Clinton world, D.C. press corps flax to be at almost what four to one fave on fave. That's pretty good. That's pretty damn good. His net favorability rating was six points higher than Elizabeth Warren's 16 points higher than Joe Biden's 18 points higher than Buttigieg's 23 higher than Klobuchar, who nobody knows, and 40 per points higher than Mike Bloomberg, who also still has some name ID catch up to do. That is worth noting. You get this impression from the way CNN was in the tank for Elizabeth Warren and the debate they hosted prior to New Hampshire or prior to Iowa, actually, about the dinner they had and whatever Bernie said about the the possibility of women becoming president, so on and so forth. And everything that's, again, been litigated and continues to be litigated by the establishment types behind Biden, some of the establishment types behind Bloomberg, 7119. That says that there's a lot of rank and file Democrat primary and caucus voters around the country that have no problem with Bernie Sanders being president. And so there was being their nominee, I should say. There was an interesting question that was asked towards the uh, end of the debate by uh, that yapping terrier from NBC News, Chuck Todd, about, uh, you know, should uh, the whoever has the plurality of the delegates, if nobody has a majority, be the nominee in the the prospect of a broker convention. And it was everybody but Bernie said basically, no, you should let the convention process play out. The rules are in place for broker convention if nobody has a majority and so on and so forth. But the the support that Bernie has, the fave-unfave numbers that he sports, that puts them in a really difficult position if indeed you do have the uh, a broker convention where – Say, for example, Bernie comes in with a a plurality, but not a majority of the delegates. How do you take it away from him on a second ballot without irreparably damaging the party and the prospects of unity going into a general election, at least for 2020?
I don't think you can do it. <laughs> I just don't think you can do it. It's just, it's just worth noting that it's so much more complicated than sort of the top-line caricatures that the uh, press corps is advancing about, uh, in particular, Bernie, and in particular, Bernie versus Bloomberg versus Warren versus Pete. Now, uh, one other uh, n- noteworthy thing with respect to Bloomberg and Warren was on the uh, sexual harassment NDA stuff. And, and this is where I, Bloomberg lost that debate and lost that opportunity within the first 15 minutes. By the time he sort of got his legs underneath him in the last 15, 20 minutes of the debate, obviously everybody had tuned in to turn to, uh, turn to something more interesting to watch. This is uh, and, and Bloomberg just wasn't prepared with answers to questions that he and, and attacks that he knew was coming. Attacks that he knew were coming. He'd gone through them before. This is a, a relitigation of the conversation he had on The View just a couple weeks earlier, but he just couldn't hold his own. According to The Washington Post, one former female employee alleged that you said, quote, I would do you in a second. Should Democrats expect better from their nominee? Let me, let me say a couple things, and have, if I can have my full minute and a, qu- a quarter. Thank That's you. That's what she said. Um, I have no tolerance for the kind of behavior that the Me Too movement has exposed. And anybody that does anything wrong in our company, we investigate it, and if it's appropriate, they're gone that day. But let me tell you what I do in my company and my foundation and in city government when I was there. You know, my foundation is going to hire women, and he goes through the data points about how many women he's hired. And so that sets up for not a fair rejoinder from Elizabeth Warren, but a rejoinder that he should have seen coming nonetheless. Yes, I have. And I hope you heard what his defense was. I've been nice to some women. That just doesn't cut it. The mayor has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? Walks right into the sophistry. We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. How, how many Let is that? Let me finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put... And let me put... Crone, you're losing, you're shrinking, you're melting. Other than a, a joke they didn't like that I told. Oh, my gosh. And I'm not willing to release them from NDAs and so on and so forth. The the other problem Bloomberg has, in addition to exuding pettiness, it just radiates out of him, exuding authoritarian tendencies. And we'll get to the evidence from his time as New York City mayor to support uh, that perspective. But it's just a constant apology. How, how do you gather anything other than a TV audience, thanks to half a billion dollars spent so far? When you're apologizing for everything that you used to tout as an accomplishment and everything that you're trying to marginalize as as a negative, you just can't be in, in constant apology mode and generate any enthusiasm for your candidacy because it comes across as weakness. 
It comes across as fecklessness. It comes across as disingenuousness in some respects. You know, what is there to hang on to with Bloomberg other than his cash? You know, after watching Bloomberg for two hours on Wednesday night, you can see why both President Trump and his pollster say, uh, well, we'd prefer to run against Bloomy over Bernie. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And while uh, the Democrat socialists were debating in Las Vegas on Wednesday night, President Trump was rallying his faithful in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, he had uh, this to say on the eve of the Roger Stone sentencing. We have a double sided justice. It's very unfair what's going on. Very unfair. But let's see how it all works out, folks. Let's see how it all works out. I hope you're going to be happy. I hope you're going to be happy because there are a lot of dishonest slime balls out there dishonest scum dirty cops a lot of dirty cops and by the way the fbi those guys in that are incredible but the ones on top they were absolute scum and what they were trying to do if that happened to obama or a democrat or especially a liberal democrat They'd be in jail for 50 years, and it would have taken place two years ago already. They spied on our campaign, remember that. And after they spied, we won. And then after we won, they tried to get us out of office. It's never happened before in the history of our country. And we can't let that happen. We can never, ever Excuse it. We can never let them get away with that. Scum. For more on this, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI, principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center at present. Uh, Kevin spent 24 years uh, as an FBI special agent, in addition to being the former assistant director of intelligence for the agency. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Um, I, uh, you, uh, how do you uh, how do you receive the waylaying that the FBI's former senior leadership continues to take uh, at the hands of Trump? Is his indignation justified? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's always difficult to, to tell where President Trump stands. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Subtle. Yes. He's pretty, very, pretty clear. And well, I've been part of that chorus that has been uh, writing about this for now two years, uh, that the the leadership of the FBI was hijacked by James Comey. Andrew McCabe, and the team that they assembled around them, led by Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. Uh, That's not the FBI I grew up in, not the FBI that I know. They broke all kinds of rules in order to force an investigation into the uh, Trump campaign, a counterintelligence investigation, uh, which has very specific rules and guidelines under which the FBI operates in order to investigate U.S persons, U.S. citizens, uh, which, of course, the campaign was made up of. So there are specific hurdles that the FBI has to get over, specific facts that they have to articulate in order to to unleash the power of the FBI to to do those kinds of intelligence investigations. And in my opinion, based on my long experience, and I ran a lot of counterintelligence investigations, um, the FBI didn't meet that bar. I think it was was, uh, the leadership at the top forcing it uh, for 
any number of reasons. Uh, you know, we can we can question whether they were biased. I think their statements since then have indicated that a strong dislike for the president and distaste for him and his policies. So I think there's safe inference there that uh, some of this was motivated by by bias. And uh, now things have become a bit more confused uh, because of the decision by the Department of Justice to not prosecute Andy McCabe, the former deputy director, despite the recommendation that he be prosecuted, despite seeming uh, smoking gun evidence that he lied to the FBI. So you're left as you read it to believe that if you lie to the FBI and you are FBI, you are FBI, then all you have to do is say you're sorry. And that's not afforded to uh, other people, say, for example, General Michael Flynn or George Papadopoulos. Mm -hmm. There's been a creeping suspicion on the part of the American people that the deck has been stacked against one political party by another political party using the levers of government uh, for their attacks. Um, I think the events of this past week put in put into stark contrast and confirm in the minds of many Americans that there is indeed a two-tier system, as the president just said. Um, there, there's certainly indications that that's the case. Now, I will say, based on precedent, um, it is probably it would have probably been unlikely that Andrew McCabe would have seen jail time uh, for his lies, but. They certainly could have charged him. He, he, he confessed to the crime. They had all the evidence they needed to make that charge. And so it, it, leaves, uh, it leaves us to wonder why, in fact, they didn't do that, especially on the heels of the uh, sentencing controversy surrounding Roger Stone. Well, I want to I want to I want to pick up there with uh, McCabe and Stone and also a look ahead to uh, whatever may be forthcoming from the Durham investigation right after we take a break. We're speaking with Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI. We'll be back with more Kevin Brock right after. Nasty Dan was nasty man. Hard to understand that nasty Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI and a principal deputy director for the National Counterterrorism Center. And, Kevin, we were talking about uh, the decision to uh, not prosecute McCabe. And it's not just what he said, but it's also the conflicting testimony on a range of topics between Comey and McCabe on things like authorizing leaking information to the media, between Comey and McCabe and Loretta Lynch about particular meetings that were germane to how investigations were being conducted to the Trump campaign as well as the Hillary Clinton email investigation. It just seems that people are saying things, principals in this whole saga are saying things that are in conflict with one another, sometimes under oath or with criminal sanction attached, if you lie. And everybody gets away with being in conflict with one another, leaving it to be very muddled in the minds of Americans. And this is the way that everybody skates on statements that turned out to be not true in conflict with somebody else uh, or the basis for dubious prosecutions of political opponents. Dan, Dan, you're exactly right. And, and and this is why the attorney general, William Barr, rightfully 
launched an investigation to determine how all of this got started and whether any of those conflicts that you just talked about need to be fleshed out and examined more closely, and, and I believe they do. So the John Durham investigation, U.S. Attorney John Durham investigation, is going to answer a lot of these questions. It is fair to do this investigation despite the chorus of anguish that we hear from the Democrat side of the aisle. This has to proceed for the American people to have any sense that there is equal justice under the law on both sides. These politically driven investigations have to be exposed for what they are. And in so doing, I think his investigation will illuminate a lot of these conflicts, answer those questions, and frankly, make it very uncomfortable for a lot of the principals involved, if not expose them to further judicial process. Even when we have seeming good faith actors, like the inspector general for the DOJ, uh, Horowitz, and he he, Mm -hmm. uh, puts together a report that is scathing scathing uh, about Jim Comey's abrogation of his duties, uh, McCabe, uh, others at FBI uh, or justice. Um, There just doesn't seem to be any reckoning. And so one is left to say, well, even if Durham comes back and says, oh, yeah, yeah, what they did was terrible. They did violate their duties. They did things that are potentially violations of criminal law. There's just a belief that no matter what you say, as long as they go on cable news or write an op-ed in the Washington Post and say, I'm vindicated, that that's how it's going to turn out. Right. They're doing that because they're extremely nervous. They, in a sense, have been painted into a corner, I'm hoping anyway, because now we do have precedents by an aggressive special counsel, which acts underneath the auspices of the Department of Justice, going after individuals for process crimes like lying under oath and leaking to the press. So you've got James Comey, who admitted leaking sensitive FBI material to the press. You've got Andrew McCabe, who's admitted to lying, although they're not going to prosecute him on that, but has done other things to manipulate the levers of the FBI to pursue individuals outside of guidelines and against policy and perhaps against the law, then they have to act. If we have any semblance of fairness in this justice system, DOJ is going to have to act and charge somebody. As a career G-man, what's your handle on Christopher Wray? Is he a good faith actor or is he another politician that happens to be the head of the FBI like Comey was? I don't think he's a politician. I don't know him. I haven't met him. I have met the attorney general. I have great faith in him. But Christopher Wray is in a difficult position. There's a lot of agents in the retired community that wouldn't mind seeing him being a little stronger in his statements, a little bit more uh, leaning forward in the saddle. But he has got some some interesting needles to thread, and um, and he has to uh, he has to be responsive to the concerns. I think he's taken steps. He's announced concrete reforms that would hopefully prevent. Uh, the hijacking that we saw by Comey and McKay from ever happening again. All the reforms that are going to be uh, needed in that regard, I think he's doing a a decent job right now, and I think we need to give him a a little bit more time, cut him some slack. And uh, with respect to that Durham investigation, how will we know that it was a um, thorough investigation, that it was an honest investigation, that it wasn't spiked by um, political insiders? Well, that's a great question. And we have the right to have those suspicions after the three years we've just gone through. But as I mentioned, I've, I've met the attorney general. He is one of the few, I believe, one of the few statesmen we have in government right now. 
piece as honest as the day is long, uh, despite all of the gnashing of teeth and, and accusations that are being hurled against him right now. He's a man of integrity. Uh, what we what has leaked out as far as the Durham investigation goes shows that he is not limiting himself to the borders of the United States. He is reaching out and asking questions and interviewing people overseas. Uh, it seems like a a far-ranging investigation, one that we would hope that would be conducted. Uh, so I'm I am hopeful that it is going to be thorough, comprehensive, and expose the the wrongdoing the wrongdoing that that occurred. And despite uh, the uh, consternation that Barr has with some of Trump's tweeting, uh, and uh, the the calls from you know a well organized uh, but very small, relatively speaking, cadre of uh, DOJ present and former that calling for his resignation. Do you sense that he's also uh, threading the needle and he's going to stay for the fight? Uh, he, he had an op-ed with Christopher Ray in the USA Today yesterday about election security and ballot integrity. So he's still doing his mm-hmm. work on, on those fronts, um, but also that uh, he's ready to see this thing through despite whatever challenges are, are present with managing or, or navigating all these different personalities and political interests. Yeah, I think I think the the war words regarding the president's tweets was a sideshow. Yeah. Uh, messages were sent, messages received. Uh, I think the president got it and realizes that he's he, he can only hurt his his case if he if he restricts William Barr or 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 says thing that that makes Barr gives rise to the perception that Barr is somehow his his lapdog. There are bigger issues here than this crazy episode that we've just gone through for three years. There's there's China's killing us. Uh, from a from an intelligence gathering and, and technology theft standpoint, uh, there's raging violence against women and children in this country. Uh, there there are all kinds of issues that materially affect the lives of Americans every day that Bill Barr wants to help uh, combat. And uh, so his his remit is much larger than this this thing that we're all politically fascinated with. And I think he he wants to stick that out. He, he is Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI. Kevin Brock, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. You bet. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And this phrase, media bias, it really doesn't come anywhere near capturing, actually, the depths of the groupthink in advance of a particular political worldview and all of the agenda points under that worldview when it comes to the uh, Beltway Press Corps, the old gang of 500, as Mark Halperin termed it, that drives so much of the tone and tenor of news coverage in this country. We've known for 50 years through Gallup surveying of the D.C. press corps, as I like to call it, Beltway Big Government Press Corps is a useful synonymous phrase, that 84 to 92 percent of the Gang of 500 have voted for the Democrat nominee for president of the United States for 50 years. So now think about that. question I always ask uh, for people is like, oh, you know, conservatives uh, whining about uh, media bias and so forth. I'm not whining. I'm just ha- just have a question. If it had been for the last 50 years, 84 to 92 percent of the political press corps voting for the Republican candidate for president, do you think the stories that were covered the way they were covered would be different? Do you think that? 
or are you going to uh, cling to the fantasy of the superhuman objective journalist? So consistent with that, there's this interesting new paper out that sort of doubles down on what I'm talking about. Uh, John Holbein is a, a professor of public policy and education at UVA, formerly at Duke. He the, uh, has a paper where he looked at the ideological composition of journalists based on their Twitter networks. And this is the great thing about the democratization of media, isn't it? And the inability of journalists to restrain themselves <laughs> any more than Trump does, ironically. Well, they want to project themselves as objective scriveners of truth tellers, accountability seekers. And Twitter, they really expose themselves as political hacks so often. So that's what uh, they used as the basis. And he finds in his paper the modal journalist somewhere between Bernie Sanders and AOC. Now, modal value in statistics, just to, you know, for those of you not remembering your econometrics 101 course, the most common number in a data set. It's useful in stats because it tells you what the most popular item in your set is. So the most popular position, the modal value of the journalist is somewhere between AOC and Bernie. That's how far left it is. So can you imagine, again, I asked the, an updated question that I ask in response to the Gallup public opinion survey. Would the stories chosen to be covered and the way they are covered be different if the modal journalist among the Gang of 500 inside the D.C. press corps was instead of being somewhere between Bernie Sanders and AOC was somewhere between Mike Lee and Ted Cruz? Would the stories be different covered and the ones that were not covered, ignored? The tone, the angle of those stories. You think it would be different if the modal journalist, instead of being between Bernie and AOC, was between Lee and Cruz? Of course it would. But this is so important to understand. Don't just flippantly use media bias. Conservatives flippantly say it. The left flippantly dismisses it. No, no, no. Let's go to the data and let's answer the big question, the intellectual question. Tell me how different coverage would be and thus our conversations would be and thus our politics would be if there was a little bit more even distribution within the journalism profession. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. This is a very special edition of Campus Beat. You know, as many times as I've spoken to Mitch Daniels, I've never asked him if this story is true story I heard about Daniels was when he was first elected governor of Indiana. And it's one of these stories about little things indicative of big things. He uh, went and looked at the state's fleet of cars, fleets of vehicles, and he put uh, a coin in the back tire of every vehicle. And then he came back, you know, sometime later, a month later, a couple months later, for all the vehicles where the coin was still on that back tire, they got sold because clearly the state didn't need them. And it was just a way of starting to change the culture in Indiana, the political culture there, because for those who recall, it was uh, governed by Democrats for the previous two decades prior to Mitch Daniels winning the governorship. And of course, the two decades now that include Daniels governorship, Indiana is one of the great turnaround stories in America. And now, of course, uh, uh, about a decade ago, uh, he went over to Purdue University 
after deciding not to run for president of the United States, much to the chagrin of many, myself included. Purdue University announced this week ninth consecutive year of a tuition freeze. For more on this, we should ask him. Mitch Daniels, president of Purdue University, former Indiana governor. Thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No, the story's so true. Is that story um, about with, the... with two, well, there are just two things. I didn't personally go around the garage. You know, we had some okay. young tigers who came yeah. up with that idea. We knew there was one vehicle somehow for every three state employees, and that seemed excessive, but we were rookies, so uh, we checked. And I would like to point out the coins involved were pennies. Yeah, not, you weren't throwing quarters, quarters around. Or, you weren't no, being profligate. Yeah. No, eventually a ton, uh, thousands. But I, I, I do remember by late spring or something that year for a, the little stunt, I went out and played auctioneer at the thousandth, and we auctioned off the 1,000th extra vehicle. Can't remember how far we finally went with that. Uh, yeah, we had a few more than we needed. I will tell you this, the uh, when I got here... Uh, they had a perfectly, I thought, serviceable car that uh, had been used for, I think, seven years by whoever had my job, and they were going to trade it in. I said, don't do that. It looks like it runs fine. I'm still driving it, and that's seven and a half years later. So, you know, you can get more value out of things if you're of a mind to. Speaking of that, and uh, congratulations, and congratulations to all the Purdue families uh, who are sending their kids to Purdue and uh, enjoying the ninth consecutive year of the tuition freeze. Why can Purdue do it and so many other universities, including those universities with huge multi-billion dollar endowments, why can't they do it? We, we don't prescribe anything we're doing, whether it's this or a variety of other ideas we've tried for anybody else. I would just say that it hasn't been, I don't consider it, uh, to have been that hard. we matter of what you prioritize, sometimes I say to people, well, we just solve the equation for zero. If you decide to you know, try to fix that variable at the tuition uh, increase at, at zero, what do we, now what do we have to do to make that work? It's been a combination of, yes, some economies, although, boy, I'll tell you, there's still all sorts of things here I think we could do less expensively. And it's turned out to, that we've been able to grow the university when many others are struggling to stay at their current size, we've grown. And so uh, as in business, more revenue on the top line uh, helps you fix a lot of a lot of problems. And importantly, and then this is a, a great marketing play in addition to management play, Purdue University graduates 50 percent more of its students without debt, debt free than the national average. That's got a pretty attractive feature to parents thinking about where their kids are going to go to school, particularly when Purdue is a, a well-respected university to begin with. Thanks for noticing. Yeah, we're about to, about to 60% of our grads leaving with zero debt. Total debt's down over a third, even though the student body's bigger. Uh, we are gaining on that, and that is the goal. I guess my, my point is uh, our school, uh, despite the uh, Nobel Prize winners and the great reputation our, uh, our graduates have built for it, uh, was and is a land-grant school. We were put here to open the doors of higher education back after the Civil War, and that still matters to us. This has never been a place, when I meet great Purdue grads, I meet them all over the world, who've done great mm -hmm. things. They almost never came from, you know, privileged backgrounds. This is one of those schools where the kid from the from downtown or the small town or the farm uh, came, and we want to always be that sort of place. I, I want to uh, take a little uh, uh, jaunt over to the curriculum side, what's happening in the, the academic side of the university. And uh, there was uh, a story out uh, last month 
about uh, including a new graduation requirement or two at Purdue. Uh, one of them that was particularly – well, both are actually interesting, but uh, one requiring uh, essentially data analyzing skills, econometric skills, because no matter what discipline you go into, you need to have uh, ability to analyze, synthesize data, extract value and meaning from data, particularly in the digital economy. And I just wanted to get your – your uh, the, the, the background on that in terms of why you're pushing in that direction. You read that right, and I think you stated the case uh, well. It's This is almost uh, uh, the ability to at least uh, interrogate data in a, in, a, in a smart way and therefore make better decisions because of it is, is, is becoming the, the currency of the realm in almost every walk of life. Uh, you know, ranging from uh, IT and high-tech businesses and manufacturing all the way to sports. And um, uh, so uh, we are seeking to integrate it, make certain that that some uh, some portion of it is ubiquitous on our campus. No matter what else you're studying, we want you to leave with at least, I sometimes say, not every Boilermaker leaving needs to be able to build the next great database, uh, but you ought to be able to ask smart questions of it. And know what it's capable of doing, mm-hmm. and so we're uh, we're definitely trying to make that a part of every student's experience, just the way English composition has been uh, for uh, so many decades. And the and the other uh, p- potential additional graduation requirement, civics literacy. Right. Um, there have been uh, you've probably reported on it because everybody has over time. There's just an, an abysmal lack of knowledge, and it's no longer limited to young people um, across our society. Of uh, you know, you got, you got high percentages of people think Judge Judy's on the Supreme Court, you know, things like that. And so mm-hmm. uh, we, uh, you see these surveys, you know, Ivy League graduates who don't understand. It's not just they don't understand the facts, you know, what the three branches of government are, so forth. They don't understand the principles of a free society, and if you really want to stay free and govern yourselves, not turn it over to, you know, some dictator from left to right, then um, you know the, the citizenry has to have a basic understanding of why we do what we do, and what their role in it is. So we're not thinking of anything too burdensome. Um, you know, I started out saying I'd like to be able for all our grads to be able to tell the world or for the world to know that they know at least as much about our system as a as an immigrant passing the naturalization test. And uh, we're going to keep it, I hope, very simple. Our faculty's working on it now. They seem sympathetic to the idea of some uh, non-burdensome uh, way for a student to uh, first pass a simple test sometime in four years. could be the day they arrive or the day before they graduate. And maybe uh, do another thing or two that uh, indicates a level of engagement and participation. So I hope we'll do that. I wish it wasn't necessary. But in a world where so few um, or such a small percentage of Americans seem to have a grip on uh, these things, uh, we'd like to certify that uh, Boilermakers are, are ready for citizenship. He is former Indiana governor and current Purdue University president, Mitch Daniels. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, congratulations on the success at Purdue. Continued success. You're continuing to make uh, the Hoosier land a lot more attractive to uh, the land of Lincoln. That's no question well, about it. Well, you know, it. we have, we have uh, 
uh, increasing number, hundreds of uh, Illinois students on our campus. I always greet them with a, when I find them. I always uh, tell them, uh, okay, I, I, uh, "You're refugees." I say, "We have a very generous asylum policy here in Indiana, and you're <laughs> you're welcome to stick around if you like." So, thanks for thank uh, good, the thank, to thank be goodness with you. for it. Yeah, yeah we we, okay. we come for the education. We stay for the property tax rates. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, where we're going to go from a model that's working, that's Mitch Daniels and Purdue University, to a conversation about a model that's not working, and that's Chicago and Illinois. The reason I want to uh, revisit Rod Blagojevich and President Trump's decision to commute his sentence is because I, I saw over the last 24 hours, as anticipated, that the press corps in D.C. would use the Blagojevich commutation to say, oh, uh, President Trump, Mr. Drain the Swamp. Well, that's not draining the swamp. This is a corrupt former governor of Illinois. And that's sort of a redundancy to say corrupt and governor of Illinois. You know, why not allow him to serve his full sentence because he uh, appeared on Celebrity Apprentice? Wasn't that just sort of cronyism? Isn't that sort of the problem at the, with the swamp, at least an aspect of the problem? It's a little bit more complicated than that with Blagojevich. And as you heard on the show yesterday in our conversations with former FBI agent on the Blagojevich case, as well as with Rod Blagojevich's brother, Rob, I am no fan of Rod Blagojevich. I have no empathy for Rod Blagojevich in terms of his tenure as governor, the corrupt acts that he committed, and the stiff sentence that was imposed. I am not a supporter of commuting Rod Blagojevich's sentence, so I disagree with President Trump there. But I also disagree with this caricature that this is some sort of sign that he's not that President Trump is not serious about draining the swamp. First, listen to Blagojevich. And uh, then I'll pick up the conversation. So Rod and his family held a press conference outside their home in Chicago upon his return and having a, a night back in the city with his family. Our deepest gratitude to President Trump. Like I said, as a Republican president and a Democratic governor, he didn't have to do this. But President Trump is not a typical politician. That's right. He's tough. He's outspoken. He gets things done. He's a problem solver in a business where... Too many politicians don't want to solve problems. All they want to do is play politics and get nothing done for the people. Got a, I'm a Trumpocrat. The Trumpocrat, that's right. If I have the ability to vote, I'm going to vote for him. Well, I don't know that they'll allow me to vote, but, if, but I'll get into that in a minute. But let me just say that 
that uh, that our, our president is uh, he's tough and outspoken, and he has the courage to challenge the old way. Yeah, the Trumpocrat party that uh, Rod Blagojevich is going to found here in Chicago. Setting all that aside, and uh, Rod Blagojevich's bloviations. The sentence, by the way, as I've argued previously, George Ryan, his predecessor, previous governor of Illinois, immediately preceding Rob Blagojevich, went to jail for public corruption, six years. Rob Blagojevich comes in and he stays stuck on stupid and doubles down on the kleptocratic culture and trying to leverage public offices for private gain and doing so in a ham-handed way. So a message sense, sentencing within the guidelines of the crimes he was committed. But yes, it was a stiff sentence. And so what? We want stiff sentences for criminals, particularly ones that are unrepentant, particularly ones that should know better and happen to be in a position of public trust where they should know better, not just representing their own interests, but representing those interests of the taxpayers they serve. Okay, so I digress. Here's the thing about Blagojevich. Number one, of course, he was prosecuted by Patrick Fitzgerald, who is a close friend of Jim Comey. I believe Patrick Fitzgerald may even be the godfather of one of Comey's children. That's how close. And so is this a shot across Comey's bow through Fitzgerald through this case? Maybe in part, in addition to the other competing interests that President Trump has and views that he has as well. But there's something else. Blagojevich, even though he sort of came up through the combine in Chicago, the kleptocratic culture that infects both political parties and has essentially eliminated the existence of the Republican Party here, he was not one of the real potentates, and he wasn't accepted by the real Chicago Democrat crime families. So he was, he was a bit of an outsider, even though he was a member of Congress, even though he was he is, was and is married to the daughter of a powerful former Chicago alderman at Ward Boss. He wasn't really one of them, and he lost favor with them early on. So I think there's a little bit of the outsider, the man that had no party prior to being convicted and sent to prison. That also has appeal to Trump. And here's the other piece of it. Forgetting, you know, forever litigating Rob Blagojevich, who is a unctuous, oleaginous political hack, which is, you know, we lead the country in producing those types of politicians. We even sent one to the White House, you may remember. But there are other things that Trump is doing that are running concurrent that give lie to this characterization that he's not serious about public corruption through the personnel choices he's made. And one of those things is John Lausch, who's the U.S. attorney of the Northern District of Illinois, has two or three parallel federal corruption investigations into state and local officials, both parties involving combat energy company here, lobbying and bribing, involving gambling interests, involving red light cameras. The details are not important. What's important is for a long time, the U.S. attorney's office would go for low-hanging fruit and be satisfied with that. And essentially, the bosses in this city and state would never be touched, which allowed them to flourish and gain a stranglehold on $150 billion worth of government and about 120,000 jobs. Take over. Make it a klepto state, which is what Illinois is. These investigations going uh, on that are being conducted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago for the Northern District of Illinois, they're heading right to the kingpins. At the top of the list is Mike Madigan, the longest-serving state House Speaker in American history, the most powerful man in Illinois politics for the last 30 years, much more powerful than any governor who's been governor here has been. 
That's how powerful. And that's who Lausch is ultimately trying to work up the food chain to get. Interestingly, the same day that Blagojevich returned home, there were more subpoenas issued in suburban communities that track to Mike Madigan, the most powerful Dem political boss in Illinois for the last 30 years. So just in terms of, oh, if you commute a Rob Lugovich's sentence, that means you're not serious about political corruption. The U.S. attorney that President Trump has installed is serious about political corruption. He sure seems to be. He will. He already has, frankly, just with the cooperation he secured and the indictments that have been handed down from sort of frontline political hacks and in the General Assembly and soon to be the Chicago City Council as well. He's already made a lot more of a difference in the political culture in Illinois than Blagojevich serving another six years in federal prison, even though I was a proponent of him doing so. And here's something, too. A study out of uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, finds that Chicago remains America's most corrupt city and Illinois the third most corrupt state. I would say it's the most corrupt state, but the metric is essentially convictions per capita, convictions of public officials per capita. In 2018, there were 13 public corruption convictions in the Northern District of Illinois, which includes all of Chicago and the northern third of the state. That's a five-year low, but uh, that is going to spike this year and in subsequent years, I can guarantee you. During the time period of the last 40 years that the study looked at Chicago compared to other big cities, 1,750 public corruption convictions in Chicago, L.A., 1547, New York, 1360, and obviously both L.A. and New York have considerably more population than Chicago. And so that's the same formula that's used to rank the states, too. And I think uh, D.C. was number one in terms of states and uh, Louisiana, number two, following Illinois at number three, California, Texas, Florida and so forth. And the commutation of Rod Blagojevich, notwithstanding, Trump may end up being a real difference maker in Chicago's political culture, not at the ballot box and not because he'll get any cooperation from the public officials here but because of who he selected to be the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District. This is Dan Proft. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I know the debate in Vegas, uh, Michael Bloomberg's coming out party, was supposed to be a tete-a-tete between Bloomberg and Bernie. And yet, uh, how many real exchanges between the two were had? The only one that was pointed where Bloomberg even laid a bit of a glove on Bolshevik Bernie was uh, this one about America's best-known socialist, the millionaire with three homes. What a wonderful country we have. The best-known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here? Well, you'll miss that I work in Washington, house one. That's the first problem. Live in Burlington, house two. That's good. And like thousands of other Vermonters, I do have a summer camp. Forgive me for that. Where is your home? Which tax tax haven do you have your home? New York City, thank you very much. And I pay all my taxes. And I'm happy to do it because I get something for it. Yeah, that was about the best moment Bloomberg had. I mean, other than the opportunity he had to remind everybody in the country that um, of all those people on stage, he's the only one who's ever actually been in business, (laughs) which is sort of remarkable and true. 
was an uh, an awkward silence when he asked the question. I believe I'm the only one who started a business on this stage. People kind of looking around. So that was a plus moment for Bloomberg. But otherwise, it was uh, a pounding that he took. And to some extent, Bernie took as well. One tweeter to the show. The debate bell rung and everyone went right after Bloomberg and Sanders. I haven't seen elderly New York Jews getting abused like that since Death Wish 3. Oh, pretty good. Of course, you have the Goldilocks candidate, Mayor Pete, who uh, provides ostensibly the middle way. Yes, we've got to wake up as a party. We, we could wake up two weeks from today, the day after Super Tuesday, and the only candidates left standing will be Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg, the two most polarizing figures on this stage. And most Americans don't see where they fit if they've got to choose between a socialist who thinks that capitalism is the root of all evil and a billionaire who thinks that money ought to be the the root of all power. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet, ricochet ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, now we know why Bloomberg has to spend a couple of billion dollars to have a chance, don't we? Oh, that's for sure. And, uh, yeah, especially people around the country seeing him for the first time speaking or what he calls speaking, trying to speak, trying to respond to questions. He's just a testy, crabby, dour, <laughs> insufferable person. And uh, But that's the thing. It'll be interesting to see how the polls change. He's obviously spending gazillions of dollars on advertising everywhere, especially in Nevada right now. But um, – it's kind of interesting because anyone from the center and then heading over to the right, when they saw him blasting Bernie as a communist and uh, saying that Trump was winning this debate because uh, everybody talking about ending capitalism, you know, anyone with any kind of economic sense was rooting for him at that time. But boy, was he just just devastated by everyone, by Elizabeth Warren, by Buttigieg, by Bernie, by everybody. It was just complete pile on. It was like a, the hazing when people uh, first first week at the fraternity or something. It's like, oh, welcome to your first debate. Let's try to destroy you. Well, he also shrunk in the moment. I mean, he should, obviously, you know, these attacks are coming. They've been they've been telegraphed for the last couple of weeks at minimum. And there was no effort to even get into the fray. So it made him look even smaller than he is. He actually shrunk, I thought, during the debate, debate until maybe the last half hour. And by then, everybody had uh, turned to watch uh, you know, reruns of Cheers or something actually entertaining. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, 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 but there was no, there's no desire to get in and you know, battle with these individuals because I, I think, like you say, he sort of has this, this, um, this, pers- this, this persona that, man, these people are so beneath me and I'm not even going to dignify that with a response and I'm just going to wait for my turn to talk about the things I want to talk about. But that's not compelling on a debate stage. Yeah, and especially when Democrats um, have it in their head that who they really want, they want someone electable, and they're very nervous thinking of how uh, Hillary performed against Trump, and they're like, who is however we're going to pick? How are they going to stand toe-to-toe with Trump? And uh, Bloomberg just sits there with a sourpuss face and, <laughs> and takes you know attack after attack after attack. It's going to make for a very uh, lopsided debate where uh, Trump will run rings around. They want to see some fighting, some fighting back. And he definitely did not offer it. I, I think you make an excellent point that this is a guy who's used to getting questions from very plant journalists when he's in Davos or, yes. or at some fancy dinner in uh, Manhattan. And, uh, you know, what most enchants you about your billions of dollars is basically the toughest <laughs> questions you ever get. So yeah. um, it is uh, quite uh, quite different for him to uh, be held to account for 
his past positions, his current positions, and then to have to defend himself at all because, as you say, he believes the people questioning him are beneath him. Fifteen minutes in, it looked like he was looking for uh, a sanctuary in an Oxford boardroom or Aspen Institute confab. <laughs> no, there's no, no question. I, I want to pick up uh, the conversation and expand it to include Bernie and even the insufferable Mayor Pete. Uh, more with John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of ricochet.com, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We're talking to John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com. And um, before uh, focusing on uh, some more on the Bernie versus Bloomy dynamic, I want to fold in Mayor Pete. You heard uh, the clip we played, you know, sort of his, I'm, I'm just right, you know, the por- that porridge is too hot, that porridge is too cold, this porridge is just right sort of thing. And I got to say, Amy Klobuchar almost had a moment if she could you know, speak with sort of force and moral clarity. Everything this guy says, I'm talking about Buttigieg, seems like it's ripped from the pages of Life's Little Instruction Book. And it's just, it's so insulting and patronizing and meaningless, really, and Klobuchar almost got to it, but she pulled up just a little bit short. Yeah, the Midwest nice kicked in, and you can't treat Pete that way. That's the thing. He's just a very smarmy guy. Uh, yeah. I think many of the Democrats realize that. Every answer sounds like he's giving a speech at TED Talk. It's basically all pablum. It's just these vague inspirational, motivational quotes you see when you check into LinkedIn. Uh, what what a manager has hanging, a mid level manager has hanging on his wall to motivate his employees, uh, but it's all just vague, a bunch of gassy meanderings on uh, what dreams we should hope to inspire so we can help hopeful dreamers aspire to greatness. It's this just kind of nonsense that he says. And Amy Klobuchar. Um, to her credit, she did throw it back a bit at him, but yeah, she did not make enough of a sustained attack on Pete. And I think a lot of it was just her emotional reaction to him. You could tell, you could almost see like when you see a mirage and the heat, the heat, uh, the heat going up, you could just see the hate coming out of her head for Pete. You could tell she really doesn't like this guy. She's like, look, I've been at this a long time. Who the heck are you? mayor of uh, the third largest city in Indiana, as she noted, to lecture me about, you know, my positions and my intelligence and so forth. Yeah, he's he looks good on paper, but when you dig down a millimeter deep, there's nothing there. He's just a shell. He doesn't really have any beliefs other than what you're saying. I'm not too far to the left. I'm not too far to the right. I'm just right. There's something else, though, that and this is the conventional wisdom that he repeats to help make it conventional, but it's not true. The idea that Bernie Sanders is a polarizing figure. He may be in a general electorate situation, but a Monmouth University poll out this week, very interesting because it speaks to the whole high floor, low ceiling that Bernie allegedly has. That ceiling may not be as low as some people think. Uh, Sanders has a favorability rating among Democrats nationally, 71 fave, 19 unfave. He has the second lowest unfave. And the highest fave among his top rivals, his net favorability, six points higher than Warren, 16 points higher than Biden, 18 points higher than Pete, 23 higher than Klobuchar, 40 higher than Bloomberg. He's not nearly as unpopular as Democrat establishment elites want Democrats to believe he is. Yeah, I agree completely. And the thing about Bernie, too, 
is most voters don't vote based on policy preferences. Um, I have daughters in high school. One of them took, which candidate is the right candidate for you online? This little test. And I reminded her, I was just like, well, you have to realize what they say and what they're actually going to do are very different things. So those tests can be left wanting a bit. But the thing about Bernie is even you see many Republicans, even conservatives, like, well, I got to respect the guy, but hey, he doesn't, uh, he's honest about who he is. He's never changed. And uh, I think it's a little disturbing for somebody to get uh, to the age of 78 and have never changed a position, never learned anything new. (laughs) But that's where he's at. And he is, in his own weird way, genuine. And a lot of people think of him as kind of like that odd lefty great uncle who shows up at Thanksgiving. You want to keep the remote away from him, you know, keep him away from any sharp objects. But, oh, you know, he's just our uncle. He's just kind of silly. So um, if voters are looking at that, they don't find him polarizing. They're like, oh, he's just an interesting character. It's like watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. It'll be entertaining. Get into his policy, and five years down the road, we're talking gulags because that's that's where it leads. But, I mean, but but he is channeling an anger and an anticipation antipathy towards Trump and an antipathy towards America, frankly, that a lot of the Democratic Party feels. I mean, it's just one of those things where you can't believe that uh, a majority of a party could be this angry and uh, find America this detestable. Well, I'm sorry, but they do. Yeah. And also, too, uh, I think uh, Democrats are complaining that he's not even a real Democrat. I think most voters around America are like, good, I hate both parties. Yeah, right. You know, and that's, that was Trump's appeal. And Bernie's saying, hey, the whole system is rigged. You know, in his own way, he's complaining about a deep state of elites and powerful people on Wall Street and D.C. and the media kind of controlling what you see and what you hear. And uh, yes, he's a socialist, but that populist message. It does carry a lot of weight with a lot of voters in all parties or just pure independents. So, so I mean, just in terms of like sizing up the field as it pertains to uh, facing off against Trump, are you in the in Trump's camp effectively? Yeah, he said it, and uh, his pollster Tony Fabrizio echoed it that uh, if it was the choice between Bernie and Bloomberg, we'd rather have Bloomberg. We'll take on the money. <laughs> yeah. I think in that, Bloomberg is just not used to taking a punch um, or punching back. Uh, He looked like a deer in the headlights up there. And so I'm thinking Bloomberg would um, start off semi-strong, and then everything would pile up and he would just collapse. People know who Trump is. You can complain, oh, okay, he's rude, and he said politically incorrect things, which Bloomberg has a lot of. But I think Amy Klobuchar had a good point when she was criticizing Bloomberg by saying, I don't think our voters look at Donald Trump and say what we need is a richer guy in the White House, a richer billionaire. Bloomberg is just a singularly unappealing guy. He's kind of like Bill de Blasio in that. If you're the mayor of New York, you have a lot of uh, rough edges, and I just don't see how that sells. Uh, Before we let you go, uh, Roger Stone sentenced today to three years and four months in prison. What is your take on what Trump has done with his commutation and pardon power, his tweeting about said and uh, what he should or shouldn't do in the case of Stone and and Papadopoulos and Flynn and Manafort, et cetera? Well, I think what Roger Stone did, if he has a D after his name, it never gets brought to trial. Um, the original sentence written recommendation of nine years was absolutely ludicrous. Uh, Roger Stone is a very flamboyant character, an odd duck <laughs> Trump isn't helping his case by tweeting so much about it, especially as it's in progress. But I think you will see a pardon just because 
when someone violates the rules, if you're kind of in the not favored party, you're going to get nailed. There's so many laws, so many rules regarding campaign finance and communications that there's always something they can find against you. For some reason, they always seem to hit the Republicans with these things, not anyone on the Democratic side. You could have made a lot of these stronger cases against people who helped uh, put Obama in office, but they were just left untouched because they were on the quote-unquote correct side. He is John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com and contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Great to be here. Viva Las Vegas! The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we spoke about. Uh, Earlier in the program with uh, Kevin Brock, former FBI assistant director of uh, Intel. Trump rallied in Phoenix on Wednesday night. There's always some pointed words and some indelible moments at a Trump rally, which is part of the reason why he fills stadiums four years in. It's an entertaining event for a lot of people. And it's also a celebration of America. And where can you otherwise get that these days? You certainly don't get it from so many of our schools or cultural institutions. So the Trump rally is sort of a refuge. I mean, this was a moment at his Phoenix rally. You do get it's like sporting events. I mean, there's nothing better than the national anthem at a Chicago Blackhawks game, number one, because Corneliuson is, you know, just got this booming voice. It's just an experience, and the fan base is so great. But also because every national anthem also includes veterans standing with Jim Corneliuson and usually including a World War II vet, which is really something. And so it was really something in Phoenix on Wednesday night for Trump to recognize a World War II vet in the audience that apparently had been profiled on local Phoenix television as uh, going to attend the Trump rally, and then having a couple of fellow Trump rally goers literally carry him down to uh, the first row area where Trump Jr. could present him with some MAGA wear. Did you see the scene? No, he's all over television. Even fake news CNN had him on. But they say he's a legitimate great hero of World War II, Irvin Julian. Irvin, thank you. 100 years old, Irvin. And the USA chants. Wanted to make sure you heard those. And I asked my son Don to get a couple of hats and get some things and give them to Irwin right now. And I want to thank you. Really, that's a great honor. And thank you for the great job you've done. An American patriot. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was just a great moment. It's a great moment. And again, you have to see these two guys that literally have. Uh, you know, each carrying a, a half of uh, Irvin, you know, w- with one leg up, carrying him down to the first row so that everybody in the stadium could see him and then Don Jr. could give him the MAGA wear. And uh, it's just a great moment. But I, I really do think about that. How many venues in America do we celebrate America? How, in how many venues? 
it's mostly been sporting events. That's sort of the last refuge. And then, of course, that was uh, marred by the kneel down movement. Uh, so So there's something too, you know, in terms of trying to understand why people go to Trump rallies, why I don't get it. And listening to Trump just sort of just riff for an hour and a half. Maybe you think that's entertaining. Maybe you don't. And I think a lot of people go just because it's a celebration of this country, the greatest the world has ever seen. And, um, you know, there's a lot of Americans who really believe that. They just don't have their voices amplified by that media I was talking about earlier in the show. This is Dan Proff. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft show.com on twitter at dan prof show and at dan prof uh wanted to uh switch gears from our talk about all things electoral politics interesting new book out from stephen levy who is the editor at large for wired a new book out on facebook and uh, stephen levy has known mark zuckerberg for some time going back to really the inception of facebook back in the early part of the first decade of this century so he has real perspective, broad perspective on how Mark Zuckerberg has evolved and how Facebook has evolved with it. So we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Levy, the book Facebook, The Inside Story. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It was my pleasure. So why don't we start there just with since you have um, that sort of institutional experience with Zuckerberg that dates back almost two decades. Why don't we start there and just your perspective at sort of a top line level of how he has evolved and his company with him. Yeah, we've heard, all heard a lot about Mark, and you know, kind of, as you mentioned, I had a lot of chance to see him as he grew and tried really to ride on the back of this tiger that he unleashed in his dorm room in 2004, which now is the biggest network the world has ever seen. When I heard that Facebook had a billion people online the same day, I think it happened at the end of the summer of 2015, I knew, wait a minute, I've been watching this company all along, but I've got to write a book about it now. And it's been a struggle. On one hand, his ambition led to the construction of this network, which now, if you count all the properties like Instagram and WhatsApp that go with Facebook, it's almost 3 billion people, really a big chunk of the whole planet. Opening that up, as people have found out, causes a lot of problems. And I was able to chart step by step how both the network grew and how decisions they made led to those problems. How would you describe Mark Zuckerberg's politics and, the, and uh, how important politics is to him? Well, it's becoming increasingly important. Uh, originally, he thought that this was something that he wouldn't have to pay a lot of personal attention to. He hired this fantastic executive uh, in Silicon Valley named Sheryl Sandberg uh, in 2008, and he split up the company. He said, listen, Sheryl, I want you to take all the things that I'm not interested in. I'm a product guy, and I'm going to build the products of Facebook. But Sheryl, you could be in charge of sales and policy, things like that. And Sheryl had worked for the Treasury Department in you know the Clinton administration, and uh, so she was 
well-equipped to do that on one hand. On the other hand, it became increasingly important, particularly after the 2016 election, where people understood that Facebook was a tremendous political force. So Mark tried to avoid it for a while, but now he realized that's a big mistake, that he really should have realized how the product interacts with the politics. And now he's um, uh, actually coming out politically. And, you know, because you can see he learned his lesson the hard way by going before Congress and having people just, you know, whip the heck out of him as he uh, stood there and, you know, uh, before committees and people criticized him uh, for the the way he ran the company. So would you say that he is similarly inclined to some of the statements that have emanated from places like Google, uh, Larry and Sergey and Sundar, about uh, doing everything they can to depose Trump in 2020 to not let happen not let 2016 happen again which is what they explicitly said in their confab after the 2016 election I think I think it's different I think you know, clearly there's a lot of liberals in Silicon Valley and though mark isn't explicit about it my guess is that you know uh, in the 2016 election he wasn't a Trump supporter uh, the day after the election there was a big meeting at Facebook I, I talked about this in my book and people were in tears. Um, and they wondered, do we participate in this? Do we help Trump get elected? And that was thought of, of, of as not a positive thing among many people at Facebook. Mark himself has been very sensitive, though, to those charges. And, and even though Facebook very emphatically says we don't tilt the playing field to liberal or conservative, uh, uh, Mark you know, uh, is listened to, you know, carefully to a lot of the uh, criticisms. There's been a lot of criticisms that come from the right about about Facebook. And at one point, he hired um, Senator, former Senator John Kyle. Um, actually, Kyle became a senator again, you know, during the course of the investigation to lo- look into that. Um, and he, he's tried to address that. And actually, that's caused internal problems in Facebook. And Facebook's employees wonder, you know, where, where are we standing on there? So it's, it's a difficult issue for Facebook to negotiate. They want to be seen as neutral, but uh, there's so much politics on the platform that they, they can't get ahead of that. So it may be, it's, it seems to me that Zuckerberg is more reluctant, whereas uh, there's a lot more alacrity over at Twitter and Apple and Google uh, and Amazon to uh, get involved in electoral politics and really uh, try to use their influence to determine the, the 2020 outcome for starters. But but despite not having technically a James Damore type of incident, Facebook sort of did a couple of years ago when Palmer Lucky was fired, the uh, the co-founder of the virtual uh, of, of Oculus View, the virtual right. reality platform. And, and how, right. did, how did the firing of Palm? How, how did yeah, that impact yeah, sort of the trajectory of Facebook since? Well, that, that's a great point because I actually get very deeply into that in, in, into the book, and and I know Palmer, you know, and I've written about his new company. Palmer, you know, uh, helped a comp- uh, of an organization buy some billboards uh, that were anti-Hillary Clinton, and when this came out that he was the funder behind these billboards, I think he spent ten thousand dollars, which was a pretty small percentage of the fortune he made when he sold his company to Facebook. You know, the people in Facebook went insane, and 
uh, he, they told him to stop coming into work. Um, they didn't fire him. And the reason they didn't fire him, it seems, is because they actually needed him to testify in a lawsuit that a company uh, was filing against Facebook of, about the circumstances under which they bought his company. So they didn't want to get rid of him and make him an enemy for that lawsuit. But they told him not to come into work, and eventually – they said, there's no place for you here. I found that was sort of ironic because at the same time they were doing that, there is a conservative on Facebook's board. It was one of Facebook's original uh, investors, Peter Thiel, who is right. close with the, the Trump administration. So at the same time that you know, they were telling Palmer, don't come to work, um, they were defending Peter Thiel when people were complaining, why is he on our board, um, and saying, well, we want diversity on the board. We want diversity of political opinion. So there's, there's two – we're two th- – concurrent things going on there. Palmer um, didn't have a place at Facebook, but Peter Thiel did. And as we see, uh, Peter's still active and uh, went with uh, Mark Zuckerberg recently to have uh, dinner with Donald Trump. When it, uh, when it comes to Facebook's future, what is it that uh, – how is their business model evolving? What is it that Mark Zuckerberg wants Facebook to ultimately be? I found it interesting. I was covering Facebook, you know, and they cooperated with this book. They gave me access to their employees. Um, they told former employees, go talk to him. And, of course, I talked to people out, outside the company as well. So during the three years of controversy of Facebook, I was looking at it from the inside. And I saw that they're shifting their uh, center of gravity somewhat to, from the the news feed, which we all encounter uh, at Facebook. It's that big stream of stuff that has everything from you know, news items to um, you know, your cousin got married. Um, uh, they're moving the center of gravity to the private messaging services um, like Instagram and, and WhatsApp and, because it's less controversial and, um, and they, they want to monetize those. They see that as, as, as the the way to the future. Um, and in the last um, a couple of years, uh, Mark has eased out the founders of those companies that he bought that have tremendous audiences now um, and bringing them closer into the Facebook families. The Facebook family is more unified now um, as opposed to having the Facebook blue app, as it's called, with the news feed and then separate apps for Instagram and WhatsApp and, and even Oculus. What's uh, Zuckerberg's greatest fear with respect to federal government action? What is he trying to prevent the federal government from doing to Facebook? Well, he he says he's on board with regulation, and I've watched him as he evolved to accommodate himself to that. But uh, they have a huge Washington operation, a very big lobbying organization, and so they want regulation on their terms. Um, And I think that uh, uh, Facebook is a, a, a big, powerful company, and they would like uh, regulation to be something that they can handle. They have incredible resources, and um, they've been forced to hire uh, foul, literally tens of thousands of people to moderate the content. Um, and certain kinds of regulations might have uh, make it difficult for smaller companies to regulate their content uh, because they wouldn't have the funds, uh, particularly startups, uh, where Facebook could handle that. So I think the fear is that Facebook would be regulated in a way – thwarts their main business model, which is uh, using data to sell ads to people. He is Stephen Levy. He's the uh, editor-at-large of Wired, and he's also the author of 
the new book, Facebook, The Inside Story. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. It's my pleasure. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We touched on Roger Stone's sentencing a bit with John Gabriel in the last hour, but let's develop it some more. Again, Roger Stone sentenced to 40 months in federal prison, given two years probation in order to pay $20,000 fine by uh, federal judge Amy Berman Jackson today. Now, uh, there, there may be a delay in implementation of the sentence until after the judge decides whether to grant a defense motion for a new trial over claims of juror bias. Uh, so, again, Stone uh, remained free on, on bail, free on bond after uh, a Thursday's appearance. Uh, the, uh, uh, the arguments for a new trial, former Memphis City Schools Board President Tamika Hart, the foreperson of the jury, uh, we find had a history of Democrat activism. String of anti-Trump social media posts came to light, in ter- including the retweeting an argument mocking those who considered Stone's dramatic arrest in a pre-dawn raid last year by a federal tactical team with a CNN reporting team embedded to be excessive force. She also suggested in her social media posts that Trump and his supporters are racist, praised the Mueller investigation, and so forth. Also, it emerged that Judge Jackson denied a defense request to strike a potential juror who was an Obama-era press official with admittedly anti-Trump views and whose husband worked at the division of the Justice Department that handled the probe leading to Stone's arrest. Another juror donated to former Democrat presidential candidates and other progressive causes. So we'll see if uh, a new trial based on a jury bias uh, will be granted by Jackson or if it's even necessary. We haven't heard President Trump weigh in since he was sentenced. But of course, the possibility is that the president could intercede, pardon Stone and make all of make the uh, appeal for a new trial moot. But we did hear from President Trump on Twitter prior to Stone sentencing. Quoting from the president, they say Roger Stone lied to Congress. uh, CNN. Oh, I, I see but so did Comey, and he also leaked classified information for which almost everyone other than crooked Hillary Clinton goes to jail for a long time. And so did Andy McCabe, who also lied to the FBI. Fairness, question mark? Yeah, fairness seems to be the um, one of the operative words of the day. Um, fairness in the sense of do we have uh, rule of law, rule of men, this question again. Do we have a one justice system for the uh, the elites, the upper reaches of government, particularly if they are of a left variety and another system of justice for everybody else? Tucker Carlson invade on the topic last night in his program before today's sentencing, saying this. Roger Stone is scheduled to be sentenced tomorrow in federal court. He faces, as you know, nine years in prison, effectively the rest of his life for lying to Congress during the course of the Mueller investigation. Like the Russia collusion fantasy itself, Stone's prosecution was wholly political. 
It was a shocking insult to the American tradition of equal justice. Obama appointed Judge Amy Berman Jackson, an open Democratic partisan, allowed a former congressional candidate, a Democrat, with a history of attacking Stone to run the jury in the case. Then Judge Jackson stripped Stone of his First Amendment rights. She threatened to send him to jail if he tried to defend himself in public. That's why Roger Stone isn't on this show tonight. He go to prison for it. The whole thing is enough to shake your faith in our justice system, unfortunately. President Trump could end this tra travesty in an instant with a pardon, and there are indications tonight that he will do that. In the last 24 hours, he's done the same for former police commissioner Bernie Carrick and for financier Michael Milken. Democrats will become unhinged if Trump pardons Roger Stone, but they're unhinged anyway. What has happened to Roger Stone should never happen to anyone in this country, of any political party, to Democrats as well, ever. It's completely immoral. It's wrong. Fixing it is the right thing to do. And in the end, that is the only thing that matters. Uh, I, Tucker Carlson is certainly right on one point, that uh, Democrats would be unhinged if Trump pardoned Stone, but they're unhinged anyway. Uh, Roger Stone is uh, a buffoon as far as I'm concerned. I have no use for Roger Stone, never have. But that's exactly the sort of person for whom you have to make sure that we have equal protection under the law. It's not the popular person. It's not the person everybody loves that, uh, that everybody wants to cater to. It's sort of like the idea that free speech isn't for speech that everyone agrees it with. It's for unpopular speech. There's no need to protect under law, under uh, constitutional principles, uh, unpopular or, or popular speech. It's, it's specifically for unpopular speech. Well, the rule of law in this, in, with respect to freedom, uh, is also about uh, protecting the unpopular. You know, this is what due process is about. This is what the right to confront your accuser, uh, to make sure that you have adequate counsel when you've been charged with crimes. All the protections for uh, uh, preventing innocent men from being convicted, preventing unpopular men from being convicted sans evidence of their criminal wrongdoing. Right. Evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. So um, setting that aside is exactly what we should do, whether or not you like Roger Stone, you think Rod, to the extent you even know who he is, uh, where you think Roger Stone's behavior is commendable or detestable. It's irrelevant, except as it pertains to the charges in the case. And the basis for the decisions that were made to prosecute as well as in the adjudicative process. Mark Penn is a former Clintonista, mentioned him yesterday on the show. He wants a reckoning, too, because he understands that if you have one party use the apparatus of the state for political purposes against another, well, ultimately, even though he's a Democrat, that can turn on him and people that he supports, people that he's allied with. If you set the precedent that it's OK to weaponize law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies for political purposes when the target is Trump, then what's to say Trump couldn't do the same when the target is Democrat? It wouldn't be legitimate any more than it was legitimate to have done to him. But once you start uh, setting precedents, you can call it whataboutism all you want. The issue is you've set You've changed the rules of the game to be uh, something they shouldn't be. 
and then you expect one political party to unilaterally disarm to exercise restraint where another did not. It's a lot to that's a lot to ask. That's a lot to expect. And thus Trump's tweet in the in the matter here. And we talked about it earlier in the show with Kevin Brock about the decision by justice not to prosecute Andy McCabe, who clearly lied to the FBI. Fairness, question mark. Trump's tweet before Roger Stone sentencing. Fairness, question mark. Is that what we see? I know we're supposed to, you know, it's waiting for IG reports, now waiting for the Durham investigation to be complete. But uh, while we're waiting, we've seen over the last three years two systems of justice. You know, people run out of patience for that, including presidents of the United States. Uh, when we come back, more on Roger Stone, because I want to get into what Mark Penn had to say in his op-ed. Again, this was pre-sentence being handed down, his op-ed, thehill.com. More on uh, Roger Stone's sentencing when the Dan Prof Show continues. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking about uh, Roger Stone being sentenced to 40 months in federal prison. Mark Penn, again, former Hillary Clinton pollster, writing in The Hill. Free Roger Stone. He says of the prosecution of Roger Stone, nothing but a political prosecution that until the president tweeted about it got little attention or examination. And uh, Mark Penn does a nice job of uh, neatly summarizing the case against Stone and the genesis of it. You know, you lose track of all of these details over the many years and the many investigations and the many prosecutions. Just untangling what the Stone case is about, it can be a bit of a mind bender, writes Penn. Stone publicly bragged about a direct, la- a direct line to WikiLeaks, then downplayed or omitted in congressional interviews his contacts with a radio host and political activist named R- Randy Credico. After acknowledged he had been in touch with Jerome Corsi, a well-known conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I know you, you got to diagram this out. He did not turn over to Congress these communications or a text to the Trump campaign that the package, quote unquote, was coming. No actual contacts with WikiLeaks were found. There was nothing illegal about any of these communications, so concealing them had no point. But Stone is a a wild card, to be generous. Stone then wrote some over-the-top text to Credico with allusions to the Godfather and threatened Credico's dog. Critically, Credico testified that he did not take these texts seriously based on his relationship with Stone. So the victim, quote-unquote, of this intimidation saw them as as typical Stone hyperbole, which you would know if you've watched or heard any utterance from Roger Stone over the last 30 years. 40, really. Penn goes on to reference two articles he wrote a year ago, pointing out how misguided the case was and how unfair the actions of the judge, Amy Berman Jackson, were in the case. He writes, unlike the prosecutions of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, Stone was accused of no financial crime. No failure to file as a lobbyist or any other business or financial malfeasance. This was not for lack of trying. Prosecutors went through every aspect of Stone's life, called witnesses galore, even bringing in the Manhattan madam to testify. But they found nothing of interest. Yet at the end of their investigation, long after they knew there was no Trump-Russia collusion, special counsel Mueller's prosecutors circled back to go after Stone as a parting gift of their $31 million investigation. 
even though Stone's infractions were of absolutely no consequence, they went after him with a vengeance. And thus, as was referenced earlier, the uh, the text to Credico that he didn't find intimidating, but prosecutors did for him, serving as the justification to bring in an armada of 26 armed officers with weapons drawn, an amphibious unit out of the ba- out back of his home in case he... <laughs> In case it would turn into a Miami Vice episode and he had some sort of speedboat at the ready. And again, the uh, raid conveniently broadcast by CNN, which telegraphed to the world that Stone was a danger to the Republic of the highest order. Had to make it dramatic to cover for the lack of substance here. Then Stone draws the same judge that threw Manafort into solitary and, according to in in Penn's uh, impression, denied him reasonable bail. Stone didn't have a passport, so the judge was unable to repeat that here. Instead, she issued a gag order to prevent him from tainting the jury pool, ostensibly. That's what Tucker Carlson was referencing. But she had no concern that CNN was tainting the jury pool with their broadcast of this over-the-top raid on Stone's home. Penn also uh, makes a nice comparison to address this two systems of justice matter. Let's review some of the lies told by others in the Trump and Hillary Clinton investigations not prosecuted. Hillary's closest aides denied to the FBI they knew her private email server existed, even though they later turned out to be partially responsible for maintaining it. Platte River Networks, remember them? Platte River Networks employee realized he forgot to destroy Hillary's emails, then destroyed them after they were subpoenaed. According to the FBI, he quote unquote lied his ass off. His punishment for both acts? Immunity. Jim Comey lied repeatedly about his contacts with the media, gave out classified information according to DOJ's inspector general. Former DNI James Clapper lied to Congress about the surveillance of American citizens, the metadata collection program. What what consequences for him? Former British spy Christopher Steele lied to the FBI about his contacts with the press. And as a result, a warrant inappropriately issued against Carter Page. Many in the and, and we've already talked about Andy McCabe. Many in the FBI and the DOJ appear to have lied about the use of Steele, uh, the Steele dossier and their failure of verifying anything of substance in, in it while they used and reused it despite information, con, uh, despite conflicting information from its key source, all to, uh, the predicate to spy on page. None of these lies has been prosecuted, not even the documented lack of candor by McCabe, as I mentioned. So what was the consequence of Stone's actions in his congressional testimony? Did he wholesale destroy records, snoop on Americans without justification, cause warrants to be issued falsely? No. No, there was absolutely no consequence to it, and any reasonable prosecutor would have dropped it or offered him the same jail sentence that another Trump, Trump, Trump campaign aide, notably Papadopoulos, got two weeks. And Penn, like me, no fan of Stone. I'm no fan of Stone's tactics and history. I am a fan of the FBI and the DOJ. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. the Dan Prof Show. Well, one aspect of uh, Michael Bloomberg's record that uh, didn't receive a workover in Wednesday night's debate in Vegas was, of course, his ghoulish position on life, life in general. Uh, It's worth noting what uh, they chose, his competitors chose not to raise in terms of utterances from Bloomberg 
as well as uh, policies more generally from their brethren. Important contrast, thinking about November. It was just three weeks ago, well, four weeks ago, almost a month ago, President Trump made history, becoming the first president to speak at the National March for Life in D.C. The first president in history to attend the March for Life. We're here for a very simple reason, to defend the right of every child, born and unborn, to fulfill their God-given potential. For 47 years, Americans of all backgrounds have traveled from across the country to stand for life. And today, as President of the United States, I am truly proud to stand with you. Contrast that with uh, Mayor Bloomberg's uh, support for something on the on, on, uh, along the lines of this "quote unquote" death with dignity uh, laws movement being supported by the left, people who clearly do not believe in uh, life as something that is sacred and should be protected from conception to natural death. Played the clip before. Bloomberg talking to uh, Jewish voters in, in Manhattan. If you show up with prostate cancer, and you're 95 years old. We should say, go and enjoy, have a nice one, live a long life. There's no cure and we can't do anything. A young person we should do something for. But society's not willing to do that yet. <laughs> that's that's a, a great hope for society for people who believe in life and not wanting it to descend into barbarism. Mike Bloomberg, though, happy to make those life and death calls just wants you to empower him to do so. That's progress, allowing a 95-year-old to die. Mm -hmm. And let me suggest that uh, he used the uh, 95 as an extreme age. He probably would be more than willing to go down the age uh, range, bring the age range down depending on the particular condition or the particular expense involved. The sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. In her lawsuit, Sakiko Garrison alleged that when she told Bloomberg she was pregnant, he responded, kill it, and said it again when she asked him to repeat himself. Great, number 16, he allegedly said, a complaint about how many employees had, at Bloomberg had gotten pregnant. A former employee for Bloomberg, David Zellenziger, confirmed Garrison's account to the New York Post. He kind of talked crudely about women all the time, said Zellenziger. Said, uh, he said, indeed, the lawsuit uh, alleged that Bloomberg would say, I'd blank that in a second upon seeing a certain women. He allegedly also told several female employees, all you girls should line up to give uh, pleasure to a male co-worker who was getting married as a wedding president. So, I mean, there's something to what's... Elizabeth Warren had to say in her opening foray on Wednesday night on, in terms of treatment of women. Senator so I, I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and by the way, I saw horse-faced uh, horse lesbians open for the Dixie Chicks at the Rosemont Horizon. Uh, good show. 
Oh, good show. Here's the thing about that. It's one thing, you know, of course they're going to play the identity politics piece of the Bloomberg record, but they're not going to play the life piece of it, either on the, on the unborn life side or on the elderly care side, are they? Because they're all in that business. They all have those positions. So I thought last night's, or uh, yeah, last night's debate was as interesting for where his opponents chose not to go as it was obvious where they would go, identity politics. And when it comes to his just ghastly things, positions he's taken and things he's said, hmm, mm if it's not, uh, it's not race or gender related, then uh, we can live with it. And, and it's, it's important to address this because you see manifestations of this same philosophy for Democrats at the state and local level in red and blue states. I mean, did you see this story out this week? Um, legislation introduced by an Alabama lawmaker named Rolanda Hollis, Democrat, proposing a state law that would require all, mal- all men to get a mandatory, well, require mandatory, uh, would mandate f- upon your 50th birthday or your third biological child, a man would have to get a vasectomy. And, of course, in addition to being obviously unconstitutional, it's her way of trying to make a false comparison. She admitted, under existing law, there are no restrictions on the reproductive rights of men, and there should be. So you know how it feels. Her bill, she said, was in response to the Human Life Protection Act, passed last year in Alabama to prohibit abortions after the baby's heartbeat begins to form at around the sixth week. That's her response to a bill to protect babies after six weeks. She said, we can't put all the responsibility on women. Men need to be responsible also. I agree with that sentiment. But note that where the responsibility lies, how, how responsibility is, is to manifest itself. Killing. The way to be responsible is for neither party to be responsible rather than only one party to be responsible. You get the philosophy of the left? And that's Bloomberg's attitude, too. I'll manage your life for you and I'll deem who is uh, to live and who is to die and then how you are to live if you are so fortunate as to receive my permission to do so. It's pretty ghoulish party, boy. Pretty ghoulish party, boys and girls. And it was on full display on Wednesday in Vegas. Would you rescue me? Would you give my back? Would you take my car? Would I start to crack? Would you rescue me? Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And boy, it's been eight years since uh, the Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman incident that led to Trayvon Martin's shooting death. George Zimmerman hadn't been in the news for some time, probably a good thing. He's in the news now because he is suing two Democrat socialist presidential candidates. That would be Mannequin Pete and Chief Warren, Pete Buttigieg and Senator Elizabeth Warren, 
for $265 million for defamation, Washington Times reporting yesterday. Two tweets, uh, one by each of the candidates. The tweet by Warren, which Zimmerman considers defamatory. My heart goes out to Sabrina Fulton, that's Trayvon Martin's mom, and Trayvon's family and friends. He should still be with us today. We need to end gun violence and racism, and we need to build a world where all our children, especially young black boys, can grow up safe and free. This tweet marking what would have been Trayvon Martin's 25th birthday. Buttigieg tweeted, Trayvon Martin would have been 25 today. How many 25th birthdays have been stolen from us by white supremacy, gun violence, prejudice, and fear? The uh, clear implication that Zimmerman took from those tweets is that he's a bigot, a white supremacist, and was guilty of a criminal act that, of course, he was acquitted of those charges. Both defendants, Buttigieg and Warren, are alleged in the complaint to have acted with actual malice, as it's widely known that Zimmerman was acquitted of murder based on self-defense. And the stand-your-ground controversy, if you remember it. I'll tell you what, George Zimmerman is not a particularly sympathetic figure as far as I'm concerned, and I don't think there was any good guy that night that Trayvon Martin was killed. It was absolutely preventable. George Zimmerman didn't need to be as confrontational as he was. Obviously, Trayvon Martin's response uh, was the wrong one, and that uh, young man wound up dead as a result. It could have been avoided. So I'm not so much into picking sides here as the facts became clear the judgment calls made by both both men were terrible. Now, the flip side is I also don't appreciate the media's invented characterization of Trayvon Martin, the stylized reporting of uh, you know baby pictures rather than the picture of Trayvon Martin in, at the time, which was relevant since there was a physical confrontation. And the question was, did George Zimmerman have reasonable fear for his safety uh, such that he uh, was justified in using deadly force? Holding politicians to account. George Zimmerman isn't a public figure. He didn't seek out being a public figure. He's right to say, obviously, his acquittal is well known, and the implication is that he is guilty of something in addition to being a white supremacist that is invoked specifically prejudice, fear. The implication is fairly clear. The smear on George Zimmerman, not very subtle. So I'll tell you what, in the wake of the uh, Covington kid defamation case against uh, big media outlets and CNN settlement with Nick Sandman. You don't have to like George Zimmerman and you don't have to take a position to say that it's not fair and it's not right to characterize him in a way that is just inaccurate and purposely do so to score political points. Thanks for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Do so again tomorrow night. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.